I'm talking to you about uh, Atia project, and I'll, I'll explain in a moment what that stands for. Um, but thanks for inviting me. Thanks to Josef in particular. So Josef and I are fellow Austrians, but we met at a conference in Bangkok, Thailand. So talk about internationalisation. So that's, um, that's kind of why I'm here. So yes, so I'm lecturing at my linguistics, but um, as I mentioned earlier, I teach mainly on our MA cross-cultural communication. Um, and I've researched international student adjustment in particular and the international student experience. But then more recently, I've become more interested in what actually happens kind of at home. Yeah, so this is where this project comes in. So ATIA stands for Approaches and Tools for Internationalization at Home. And I'll tell you a little bit about this um, in a moment. So this was essentially uh, an EU-funded project that we recently concluded at Newcastle University with partners. So what I'm planning to do is I'm just going to give you a little bit of background in terms of the status quo of internationalization at home. I think some of this will link very nicely with the two talks we've already heard this morning. Um, and I'll then tell you a little bit about the project, um, so the different stages of the project and our rationale doing the project and then I, I will unpack um, in a bit of detail the resources that we produce or the outputs of our project which hopefully will be interesting to, um, to this audience but then I'll also from a more researchy um, perspective I'll tell you a little bit about the empirical data we found as one of the strands in this project as well so um, that's the plan so I hope that sounds okay. So a little bit of background of course it'll, it'll be um, no surprise to anyone in this room, I think that a lot of universities are now proclaiming their international status, um, they're emphasizing that they are international universities and competing against each other. But anecdotally, but I think also looking at the literature, there is still very little consensus about how we can actually define this status. So what is an international university really? Um, I think, again, those of us here, we know that often internationalization is very much about generating income, generating revenue, in particular uh, through tuition fees um, from international <coughs> students. But then, of course, it is also about increasing the, the market share, I should have put that in scare quotes possibly, of um, international students and staff. So a lot of courses about international student recruitment, in particular bringing in um, students to British universities. And of course, this doesn't only happen in, in the UK. Um, and then I think also it's important to remember that internationalization has tended to be a lot about enhancing the prestige, reputation of the institution, in particular the position in global rankings. So I think I, I can say all these things. Um, I think they're not secrets. Um, so this is a little bit of background about how I think internationalization has been done for a long time. So myself and colleagues, we've started calling this internationalization 1.0. So this is a, sort of the traditional approach to internationalization, I suppose. Um, so fairly market-driven. So in response to this, and we've heard the word purposeful internationalization, I think, this morning um, from Sylvia and Jenna already. So um, in response to this, there have been increasing calls for more integrity and for more purpose in internationalization strategies and processes. And you'll see this is where our project really comes comes in. So there are now calls for greater emphasis on social, cultural, ethical um, aspects of internationalization rather than just simply taking, um, I suppose, metrics as a proxy for quality. Um, so moving away from simply statistics related to mobility, bringing students in to other issues such as 
um, you know, for example, at Newcastle, there's a big drive now around intercultural competencies and how we can ensure that all students get this, not just the, the minority who is internationally mobile. So this has been a response, if you like, to, um, to the more market-driven economic approaches. So in relation to this, um, I think it's fair to say that dialogue around this notion of internationalization at home is gathering momentum. It is by no means a completely new concept, of course. I think it has been around since about, I, I saw this random year, 1999, where allegedly it has been used for the first time, or sort of coined. Um, and it is being used, I think, increasingly um, within institutional policy documents, but you also start to hear it crop up at conferences here and there. So I'll be using it quite a lot um, for the remainder of, of my talk. Um, I'll unpack in a moment what, what we meant by this and what we mean by this. Um, there is, if you look at the literature and also you know, talking to colleagues, I think a little bit of a lack of a recognized strategy for internationalization at home let alone the definition of this term and what it actually involves. Um, but there are some elements that have been identified in terms of what is, what is actually part of internationalization at home and what do we mean by that. So I'm just, I'm just going to put up three, I think, fairly frequently cited definitions of internationalization at home um, regarding the European uh, literature the, from in the European context. So the first one here, you can see a slightly earlier one, talks about anything that's international but going beyond mobility. Okay, so this is, I guess, the first theme here is to, not saying that mobility is bad and we should stop student and staff mobility, of course not, but it is something that is, um, be go, is beyond that or, or in addition to mobility. And then I think the second set of um, um, studies or, or the second strand in this discourse around internationalization at home focuses more on intercultural competencies and um, developing what um, I, at Newcastle I often hear this word, the global graduate. I still don't know what that means exactly, but uh, we are supposedly educating them. You know, um, And then I think the third quote here is one that I've come across quite often in, in the literature, and this is more to do with the curriculum, so incorporating international and intercultural dimensions into both the formal and non-formal curriculum. And I think we've already explored a little bit this morning that this is quite tricky to do, you know, how do we do it effectively. So I'm not going to say any more about that, but just so you're aware, it is um, now increasingly used as a term in the research literature as well as in policy documents. So this is, if you like, the, the, the background to the project. So in my department, we were really interested in this idea of internationalization at home. So we thought, um, well, a good step to explore this concept further would be to apply for some funding from the EU. So um, luckily we were successful. So we had a two-year um, Erasmus Plus strategic partnership in higher education funded with um, two partners. So we had one partner in uh, Belgium, the University of Leuven, and one partner in Italy, the University of Bologna. And altogether we were a team of nine researchers across the three institutions. So we at Newcastle, we led the project, but in cooperation with the partners, of course. We selected those two partners because we had previous working relationships, we knew each other, but also because all the researchers involved had not only an interest in internationalization, but were also in varying roles within their own institutions that had something to do with internationalization in the broadest sense. Okay? So there was certainly, we all were invested in this topic. 
from, from you know, in one way or another. This is the website. Um, I'll say a little bit more about that later on. So it is still being maintained. It's still live. And because the project has now concluded, you can find all the um, outputs of the project there. But you can also read a little bit more about its inception and that kind of history of it. So, so the rationale, I think I've given you lots of background, but basically, and perhaps in simpler terms, our rationale was twofold, really. So on the one hand, we felt that um, internationalization in higher education needs to be more than simply mobility. And if universities want to desperately proclaim this international status, then really they should start at home. So this is really where we, um, where we started off with. And then related to this, we also felt that um, the opportunities that internationalization offers should really be of benefit to all students and staff. So as I say, not only those who are internationally mobile, not everybody is, not everybody can be. So this was the, the rationale for the project. So I'm now going to just tell you a bit about what the project actually was and what we did, and then I'll show you some of our research findings as well. So hopefully um, those of you who are a bit more interested in the practical side of things in terms of impact will find this interesting, but then those of you who have the researchers' hats on, hopefully there'll be something there for you as well. So the project basically had three stages. So the first stage was our data collection um, stage. So this was really the research strand, which interestingly wasn't funded by the European Union because they only funded to us to create these outputs. But of course, in order to create outputs, they needed to be empirically informed. So anyway, so the first year we spent um, doing research in kind, really, with um, um, support from the European Union, although not financial. Um, so what happened in this stage was we conducted a literature review, of course, initially, but then we did three different things to collect um, our data. So the first was a baseline audit. So we conducted a ser series of individual interviews with a group of stakeholders across the three partner institutions. So these were individuals who had different positions in terms of internationalization. So they may have been um, directors of internationalization, but they may also have been responsible for curriculum <coughs> development or have a leading role in the students' union. So we looked at stakeholders at all levels of the institutions as much as possible, um, interviewed them, recorded the interviews, did a thematic analysis, and then the findings from these initial interviews um, informed the design of some focus groups, which was the second stage. Um, and here we conducted six focus groups, so two in each location. One was with both home and international students, and one was um, with staff. So you could s say that the first stage, really, with the interviews, was our sort of benchmark, really, baseline. So we wanted to know what's actually happening at the moment in terms of internationalization at home. And then stage two was a little bit more about um, people's individual experiences in terms of students and staff and what should happen in future. So again, run a thematic analysis and the findings from the second stage then informed an online survey that went across uh, the three institutions again, but we also distributed it beyond, so we have responses from, I know it's not a huge sample, but we've got around 340 valid responses from across European higher education institutions, so that gave us, if you like, a little bit of quantitative data as well. So, I mean, the reason, other than 
being researchers and being really interested in empirical data, the main reason for this first stage was this really. So we developed a set of resources, and I'll, I'll unpack those resources for you in just a moment. Um, but I just wanted to make it clear that they are very much informed by data that we collected. So, you know, we didn't just come up with ideas um, that we plucked out of the air. So all these different data collection methods fed into our resource development. So we developed three things. We came up with a self-audit tool, a curriculum framework, and an evidence framework. So really we wanted to end up with three um, tools that different individuals and organizations could use to implement internationalization at home. So that was the idea. And in a moment I'll, I'll, I'll take you through these in a bit more detail. So that was the second stage, so we spent, as you can imagine, a long time designing those resources, trialing those resources, going back and, and revising them, and then once they were ready, we had a dissemination stage, and as you do with EU-funded projects, you have to do these multiplier events, they call them, which are basically just workshops, um, to disseminate your, your materials. So we held those as well in, in the three countries, and then we had a project conference um, in 2018 in, um, in Bolzano in northern Italy. So that's the project in a nutshell. And what I thought would be particularly interesting maybe for this audience is to talk a little bit more about phase two. So I will unpack those resources for you a little bit, if, if that's all right. So, um, so like I said, we had three resources that we developed, or tools we're calling them, really. Each partner took the lead to develop these tools, so, so we had one partner assigned to each tool, but of course we all contributed. So the first one was the self-audit tool, and in a way that was very much related to our baseline audit, talking to stakeholder, stakeholders, um, and we wanted to create some sort of tool that might help institutions and individuals to benchmark in a way where, where they were at in terms of internationalization at home, so what was currently underway um, in their own context. So this is really about helping institutions to enact internationalization at home in their institutions. So our partner in Bologna took the lead on this. Um, so essentially what it looks like, I didn't bring, I mean, I've got one copy actually that I can pass around of this particular tool. I didn't want to print it out, but uh, you can find them on the website. So there are different dimensions, learning, teaching, student activities, but also professional services. So there is something in there for everybody, really, and there are different criterias, and people can, you know, it looks like, um, you know, tick boxes, and people can actually then see if certain things are in place and to what extent to see what the status quo is, really. So it, it is a benchmarking tool. The second resource that we produced was a bit more related to the learning and teaching side of things. So initially, we wanted to put forward a um, sort of an outline for a module called Internationalizing University Experience. We did actually trial that at Newcastle, but um, the actual resource from the project ended up more like a, I suppose, a discussion document, um, and we call it a curriculum framework now. So it isn't, it isn't a module outline, you know, with teaching sessions week by week, but it's something that's a bit broader. It does have teaching-related ideas, but it also has a, um, you know, a discussion and, and a step-by-step -step guide on how one might internationalize the curriculum, so both on the more formal side and on the, the more extracurricular side of things. So this was more to, to really to develop um, initiatives, activities on the learning and teaching side of things. 
And then the third one is an evidence framework. So this was more related to, if you like, the professional development side of things. Um, so we wanted to develop a tool that would help higher education practitioners to evidence their practice because talking to people, what we realized was that there were lots of individuals who were doing something related to internationalization at home. They may not have used that term, but they were doing it in their teaching, they were doing that in pastoral support, they were doing it in their administrative roles, but there was no way of evidencing that when it came to promotion. And there is a complete absence of that, in Newcastle at least, in terms of internationalization does not feature at all in our promotion application. So this we were hoping would be a tool that people could use to record what they are doing and to evidence it as well. So it includes um, different criteria for different career stages, from early, mid-career, and people in leadership roles. So those are the three resources. So we very much hope that these um, will be used. As I said, we trialed them in our own institutions, but it is something that we hope will um, be used by, by people further afield and you know, across, across Europe, really. If you want to access them, they're on the website, so they're free to download in three languages, so Dutch, Italian, and English. Um, so you just, that website will stay there you know, forever, as far as we're concerned, so please do feel free and, and take a look. They're quite big documents, but they're PDF documents, so fairly, fairly, fairly simple, really, to download and print off, if you like. So this is the more practical side of things. So, you know, I realize I'm trying to squeeze a whole Erasmus Plus project into 20 minutes, so do bear with me. So this is the practical side of things. But then I also wanted to just give you a little bit of a flavor of the empirical findings um, that we gathered. So, of course, I can't tell you everything. So what I thought I would do is to just share with you some empirical insights from the stakeholder interviews that we did. Um, so... Part of the um, data we collected has been published. So there's one paper that I published with my colleague Sue Robson and, and Joanna Almeida last year. Um, so this particular paper looked at um, the perspective of, of stakeholders in terms of internationalization at home. So we were interested here, and this was part of the project, but then obviously it was a spin-off in terms of this was a purely a research focus rather than um, the more practical side of things, but the data came from the project. So we wanted to know how internationalization practices are both approached and operationalized in two case study institutions. So we had one university in the UK and one in Portugal, partly for the reason one of the co-authors was um, from Portugal, but also because we thought it would be quite interesting to compare um, a traditional receiving country from the Anglophone world to another European country that has um, also is very ambitious in terms of internationalization, but is, has a very different demographic in terms of receiving countries. So the Portuguese institution was much more, I suppose, embedded in the, in the Erasmus short-term exchange, whereas, of course, with the, the university in the UK, was much more tradition, traditionally degree-seeking students coming to do full degrees. So it was a little bit different, but both were research-intensive, fairly leading institutions, both international in terms of metrics, yeah, so the, the British University was, um, or is in, in the top 20 recruiters of international students, I don't know if that's relevant, but there you go, so if you wanted to hear some, some metrics, so we, we chose these two contexts, um, and then what we did was, we conducted interviews, as I said, as, as part of our project, so we did, we did that in, in the UK, of course, but also in Portugal, um, and 
we applied something called stakeholder theory, which is completely outside our, our field of study, but basically a stakeholder to us was somebody who um, had a stake in the internationalization at home process in one way or the other at different levels of responsibility, perhaps. So we, we kept that quite open. Um, we did want them to have different levels of involvement, and we were very mindful to include people who were what we would consider more at the top-down and more the bottom-up level of internationalization at home. So we spoke to um, people who were involved in more student-led activities as well as to people in you know, top leadership positions or managerial positions like pro-vice-chancellors and so on. So it was a, real mixed, a really mixed group. Um, very briefly, how did we do the analysis? It was inductive as well as deductive, so we were very keen to see what would emerge from the data, but we also had because of our literature review, we had a set of um, a priori themes that we also applied to the data. So we, were, we tried to be as iterative as possible in, in that process. So because I don't have much time, I'm not going to tell you everything. I'm just going to focus on two aspects. But these are the, the five themes that we found that the two institutions shared. So we treated each case study as, as a um, discrete unit of analysis, but then we found these five themes that um, were mentioned across the two. So a lot of talk about the state status quo of internationalization, processes, particularly internationalization at home, what indicators of internationalization might be, and then we had internationalized curricula, professional development, and more the student experience. So what I thought I might do to fit in with the, with the theme of, of, of today's session, hopefully, is to just tell you very briefly about these two areas here, so internationalized curricula and the student experience, because I think this morning we've heard quite a lot about the student experience, so it's actually quite handy because I think that will align, hopefully, um, quite nicely with what, what my colleagues have said earlier. So very briefly, these were the, the sort of things we found was, and again, maybe this doesn't come as a surprise to you, that a lot of the um, cultural activities aimed at uh, students were advertised as being for international students. So you had your Christmas gatherings, your buddy networks, mentoring schemes, your excursions to lovely villages in Northumberland and all of that. But it was very much branded as your international common experience, our culture. So there wasn't really, and remember we didn't talk to students here, these were stakeholders, so these were staff, and they had this perception that, hang on a minute, there isn't very much really for our home students here. So that was the first. Then this came up again, I think this resonates with what we've heard, a perceived lack of interaction between home and international students. So from the staff perspective, they felt um, that their students found it quite difficult to instigate and then maintain meaningful relationships. So we did find from what staff were telling us that students had quite a lot of formulaic conversations in service encounters with taxi drivers and so on, but nothing really that went beyond that. Okay, so that's what I mean by more meaningful, more sustained. Also a tendency among students to cluster around those perceived as similar. So this goes back to, um, to the classroom. And then when staff made attempts to actively mix students, they reported often these um, attempts failed, so they weren't very successful. So I'm just going to show you two examples of what people said. So the first is a member of staff from the UK and the, the other one from Portugal. So you can see here the first one they talk about, um, even within the international group, uh, observing a tendency for... Um, different national groups or language groups to, to, to cluster together. So it wasn't only 
international versus home students. It was also very much within the international um, group. Um, a def sort of a default self-selection mode for somebody perceived as, as similar, whatever the, the criterion for that was. Um, and similar to, to Portugal and finding it hard to break down that barrier. So in our interview, staff were, were trying very actively to break down these barriers but weren't necessarily always very successful or that's what they thought. And then just the second theme, so in terms of curricula, most people we spoke to did very much acknowledge that it was um, useful and brought value to, to integrate intercultural perspectives into the curriculum. So they all very much endorsed that. However, they did also find that um, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on international aspects of the curriculum in staff meetings, you know, in planning days, in curriculum development more generally. Um, and that was also linked to a lack of clarity around this term internationalization at home, what that really meant, as well as what do we mean by intercultural competency. So these are all things that would come up in, in policy documents, but when we actually spoke to staff about their own practice, they felt this was all still fairly ambiguous and that the diversity of the academic community wasn't really harnessed as efficiently as it could be. So again, just to illustrate this, um, two quotes from um, British members of staff. So the first one is about um, <coughs> meetings at university level and that the internationalization of the curriculum is not something that is talked about very much you know, at faculty level meetings. It's not something that features very highly on the, on the agenda. And then down here also a sense that most members of staff probably wouldn't really know what internationalization at home meant, even though it was in both institutions, it was very much in the high level policy documents, but it didn't necessarily filter down. So this is just a flavor of the empirical data. So to conclude, really, I just wanted to show you this, which looks, uh, we're not very good at doing diagrams, so I do apologize, but let me just unpack this for you briefly. So in conclusion, I think what we thought at the end of this, for this paper, but also the, the, the whole Erasmus project as a whole, I think we felt that for internationalization at home to work, you'd need three dimensions. You need the organizational level, the individuals, so the people, but also the curriculum. So this maps onto the... Um, framework of the Higher Education Academy as well, the internationalization framework. And from the data that we gathered anyway, we felt that um, internationalization at home, if it's conducted effectively or internationalization more broadly, really should be seen as something more qualitative. Now that's not to say that, that, that we should um, disregard all metrics. Of course it's important to have mobility schemes. Yeah, But what we mean by qualitative is really more the curriculum side of things, um, but also professional development. So particularly, I think, to highlight reward and recognition, that's something that came very, very strongly through our survey focus groups as well as the interviews, that there wasn't really any training, and I think the word training has already come up a few times this morning for staff, in terms of I want to contribute to internationalization at home, but how can I? Um, and also, like I say, no mechanism to evidence if they had done anything that could be class as internationalization activities. So um, hence the, the tool that we developed. And then finally, the involvement of stakeholders, not just as beneficiaries of, of internationalization at home, but also agents of change. So I think, again, this morning we've talked about students themselves not only being recipients of this wonderful international experience, but actually them also being actively involved. Um, so very much bottom-up, but also top-down. So 
I mean, we felt really at the end of this project, it doesn't really help if you have um, students trying, trying, and trying, but then senior management doesn't really buy into the, um, the sort of processes of internationalization at home, and if there are no mechanisms to support it, it's very hard to implement it. So, you know, a lot of it depended on the goodwill of individuals, really, I think, is, is, is the conclusion that we drew. Um, this is the website, so here's the link. So, again, um, do feel free to, to have a browse and, and look at our resources um, if you're interested. And also, just to briefly say, this wasn't just me, of course. We had a whole team, so here are the other researchers. So, Sue Robson, whom you might know as the PI, um, and then there was me and colleagues in Belgium and Italy. That's it for me. <laughs>